Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the week of March 26th, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk to astronomer Kevin Shawinsky about a galactic opportunity for you, and we'll go on a quick tour of a new, very green building on the Yale campus. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. I spent March 24th on the campus of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. One of the researchers I spoke to was Kevin Shawinsky about an unusual project that you can contribute to. We spoke in his office. So, Galaxy Zoo, that's... uh Right away, it sounds like fun, but it's it's a really serious effort to get regular people involved in science, and it well obviously benefits you too. Why don't you just tell us about it? So, Galaxy Zoo is a is a website through which we invite anybody uh, uh, out there with a computer to help us in some astrophysics research. Uh, it really boils down to to uh, a task that turns out computers are really terrible at, which is recognizing shapes. And on the other side, human brains, humans are really great at. And one of the uh, challenges in modern astronomy is that data sets have become so large, we've gone from hundreds to thousands to millions of galaxies. And human human eyes, a pair of human eyes, is still the best way to sort through different kinds of galaxies and put them in categories that we can then analyze. And so uh, it turned out that with these large data sets, we just... There aren't enough researchers, scientists, graduate students in the world um, to analyze them, and so we turn to help from from the public. And you got it in numbers much bigger than you ever dreamed. Absolutely. Uh, when we put the first website online within the first 24 hours, so many people logged on that actually one of our servers physically melted physically melted it didn't just go down it, it it was destroyed an actual cable melted because it overheated wow so how many people do you actually have around the world now helping in helping you with this project so after the launch of galaxy zoo 2 we've now exceeded the 200,000 user mark what kind of quality control do you exercise over 200 over a, a laboratory staff of 200,000 people it turns out that, again, because the human brain is such a fantastic pattern recognition machine, almost anybody is really good at this. So we, when we compare what, say, members of the public do compared to professional astronomers, there's, there's no difference. In fact, in, in many ways, members of the public, citizen scientists, are better at this task because uh, they don't have any uh, pet theories. They don't get hung up on little details. They just go for it. It turns out your gut reaction is still the best classification out there. Yeah, the, the professionals might see too many options in something. Yeah, or well they may, might get hung up on the detail that's really not important. And uh, the, the initial reaction that uh, you get from an image turns out to be most often to be right. What were you doing where you decided that this was the way to go, that you needed the, the help of the public? So I was looking for uh, my PhD work. I was looking for a particular kind of galaxy, uh, blue elliptical galaxies. These are galaxies that are sort of rock, rugby ball spherical shaped as opposed to spiral galaxies, disk galaxies like our own Milky Way. And uh, there really wasn't a good catalog of these blue ellipticals out there uh, because most people just said things that are red that have stop forming stars are 
are elliptical galaxies. And so uh, as part of my research, I I classified by hand about 50,000 galaxies into ellipticals and spiral galaxies like you do in Galaxy Zoo. And and we we immediately realized that this was a very powerful way of doing things, only there really wasn't, you it, it just wasn't feasible to do this all by myself or even in a small team. And that's when one night in the pub, actually, we hit on the idea that, well, let's put them on the internet and invite members of the public to to lend us a hand. And is, are those your only two choices right now, elliptical or spiral, or are you are you dealing with uh, more options when when people sign in to help out? Originally, yes, it was a very simple classification scheme. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, we launched Galaxy Zoo Two, which is a, a much more elaborate classification scheme. It's a series of questions, which then decides what we're going to ask you next in detail. It's in fact the first thing that the uh, uh, members of the public, the citizen scientists, told us. You know, please give us more options. We can really do this. Did you have help from non-astronomers, from computer science people, from psychologists, anybody else? chip in to design the whole interface with the public? The the biggest uh, help we got was from a from a professional web developer that created our fantastic interface, which is uh, really gorgeous, I think. Other areas of science started coming in later when we started uh, encountering things, effects that we later learned were due to human neurology rather than the universe being very strange. Give me an example. So we found uh, very early on that... Uh, uh, we asked people to tell us whether a galaxy was clockwise or counterclockwise rotating, uh, if you could tell, uh, in, in order to test the uh, um, isotropy of the universe. So if you look into different directions in the sky, the universe should be the same. This was one test of that. And to our horror, uh, very early on, we found that most people returned a slightly higher number of counterclockwise rotating spirals than clockwise. This was really puzzling. This was the same effect no matter where you looked on the sky. And the implication of that would have been that, that we're in some sort of special place. It was, in a sense, we would be in the center of the universe because we had this special vantage point. We then tried to think of ways where this might come from, and it hit upon us that maybe it's on the other side. Maybe the universe is perfectly normal. It's, it's something about humans, about us. And so we mirrored the images to see what would happen. And lo and behold, the effect went the, went the other way or rather the same way around. And so it turns out that there's something about human perception that means that you're slightly more confident, perhaps, about counterclockwise rotation versus clockwise. And so we, we've realized now that it's not cosmology, it's neurology. And so now there are neurologists studying this by putting people into brain scanners and showing them pictures of rotating galaxies. You mean your work has prompted this new work by neurologists because of that anomalous result? Yes, absolutely. It's probably the first time that uh, astrophysicists uh, had to fill out ethics forms. Very interesting. So, again, what you're saying is that when you flipped the images, you let's say it was 55 to 45% in favor of counterclockwise. And when you flipped the images, you still got 55 counterclockwise. Right, except, of course, the image was flipped, right, and so right. in reality it was clockwise. Right, so no matter what what way they were actually facing, you still get this weird result where people see it as going the other way. That's it. Very interesting. You've, I've, I hear that you have some kind of interesting stories about the individuals who are out there working in their homes on the galaxy uh, identification. Some of the people have... have shared their uh, stories with you. 
Absolutely. I mean, citizen scientists are an incredibly diverse group and uh, they're incredibly helpful. They're making research possible that otherwise we couldn't, we could not have done. And they're very self-organizing. They're very first 20, very 21st century in their attitude. They organize their own meetings. They come from all sorts of backgrounds, from school teachers, from government officials, from, uh, uh, students, a lot of parents tell us they do it with their children and that their children are better. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I believe we've inspired at least a number of people to, to, con- to pursue their interest in science in other ways. I've just learned of, uh, one Galaxy Zoo user who, uh, whose interest in astrophysics was so sparked by Galaxy Zoo that he's, he's now enrolled in a university course in astrophysics. There's, uh, an article from an Indian newspaper or website posted on your door that refers to Hanny's Vorwerp, right? And Hanny is one of your distributed computing people. Uh, yes, she is. Hanny van Arkel is a Dutch school teacher who was the 26th person to classify a galaxy, but her attention was soon drawn to a weird, strange blob shape uh, next to it, which... Uh, she recognizes being unusual, something that a machine would uh, never have recognized. This object sat in the data for the last six or seven years, and nobody had flagged it as unusual until a human being looked at it and said, hold on a minute, that looks weird. And she alerted us to it, and, and we've been studying this strange object ever since. As far as we can tell, it's uh, the leftover ghost um of an enormously powerful, luminous, accreting supermassive black hole in a galaxy actually very near to us. It was the most nearby uh, quasar perhaps 100,000 years ago. And the light from this quasar lit up uh, this cloud of gas right next to this galaxy that is still shining, even though the quasar may be long gone. And so allowing us this unique insight into what supermassive black holes really do, how they feed over timescales that we could never observe you know, within a human lifespan. And she gets that thing named after her for that effort. Absolutely. In fact, we didn't even name it before we, we got around it. Uh, the users themselves decided to name it after her first Honey's object, uh, but then decided that the Dutch word for object, voorwerp, sounded much cooler, and so it became known as Honey's voorwerp, and uh, in the hope that perhaps we find other objects uh, like it, in which case we'll have established a class of objects named objects. And uh, is it just galaxyzoo.org, or what, how do people access it? Yeah, you just log on to galaxyzoo.org and you sign up uh, after a, a quick introduction to um, how to classify galaxies. You're ready to go out and uh, contribute to astrophysics research. And uh, uh, if you're really interested, you can also join our online community in a discussion forum and a blog. That sounds great for your your astronomy people out there and you know anybody else who's interested in actually doing real contributions to ongoing research. You know, this is this is a way to do it. The the age of the citizen scientist has pretty much uh, gone by in in fields like chemistry and and a lot of physics, but in astronomy, it's thriving. Absolutely, and I think the 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 the, the real age of citizen science is still coming as we uh, learn to harness the power of the internet and uh, as we go beyond just giving you a program that you run in the background as your screensaver and we tap into into the power of your brains. We we need your brain to do science. Yay! 
Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Sciences has a new home called Croon Hall. As you'd suspect from the name of the department, some extra care went into putting up this structure. I spoke to the department's communications director, David DeFusco, in a large open space on the second floor of the building. Croon Hall, which is the main administrative building for the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, actually is sitting atop the former site of a power plant and a brownfield. And this building is about 218 feet set back from Prospect Street, 57 feet wide, and it extends right into the heart of Science Hill for Yale University. And um, the design of the building actually is to minimize energy. It's uh, passive solar design. Uh, so, for example, the, so- the south facade, the length of the building uh, is, um, well, it's, it was designed this way to maximize solar penetration and heat during, on the south side during the winter. Right, completely passive, just w- windows. Right. And the north side is built into uh, a hillside you know, for thermal. Also, too, uh, we use a 100-kilowatt PV array on the roof, and uh, we have our rain garden out in the south uh, courtyard that uh, will that um, recycles water off the roof and off the grounds with, by the use of aquatic plants. And that water is then pumped back into the building for use uh, in toilets and for irrigation of the grounds. And the, we predict that we're going to save about a half a million gallons of city water a year. Uh, Tell me more about the roof. You get the 100 kilowatt is, a, uh, is an estimate of what its potential maximum output yes. is? Yes. Um, it all, the building also uses geothermal heating and cooling, so it uses the relatively constant temperature of the groundwater, which is about 55 degrees. Uh, that water is, there are four 1,500-foot deep wells uh, on the east side, I believe, and that water is then pumped in to the building, and it's um, either compressed to uh, heat it or expand it to cool it, almost like an air conditioner would. Uh, and that is then used uh, to heat or cool the, the air that circulates throughout the building. What about the, it's got a kind of interesting overall shape. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's almost like a cathedral nave, uh, uh, a, like a modernist blend of a cathedral nave and, and a Connecticut barn, if you will. And all of uh, the wood is... Uh, from uh, sustainably managed forests. Uh, half of the wood paneling used inside is comes from Yale Myers Forest in northern Connecticut, 15,000 board feet, and it's red oak trim. And these glue laminated timbers are Douglas fir. And the exterior of the building uses uh, sandstone, which uh, was picked to... Blend in with blend campus in with a little. Yale buildings, yes. I know uh, from my personal experience, I've only been in the building for a couple of hours, but um, I did uh, find some interesting things in your bathroom. Yes. Uh, <laughs> what are those I've never, well, I've never seen the uh, the toggle, you know, the two-way toilet flusher. Yes. Yes. Uh, there are a lot of European-type features here. Uh, but the two-way toilet flusher is, is such a simple thing. You know, you, you, you flush it, uh, you go up for liquid waste and down for solid waste, and you get much more of a water flow for when you're pushing it down for the solid waste. And so 
you know, it's an easy way to save, you know, a couple of gallons every time you use it as opposed to, you know, single use, single mode flushes that just treat everything the same. Sure. And they're also waterless urinals in the men's room. And what's significant about the South Courtyard and the soon-to-be North Courtyard is that these courtyards uh, were created or designed to create community. So for the first time in a 100 years, when you walk through the arch down at Osborne Memorial Laboratories, you're actually coming to something. Uh, to a, and, it, and the whole point is to, to come to something where you want to be. You want to be here. You want to hang out here. You want to study. You want to... Yeah, it's a really, it's an incredibly pleasant <clears throat> space. I mean, just just all the wood. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, this is the forestry science building, right. so, you know, it's a great touch, but it really makes it someplace where you you just want to sit and do your stuff Absolutely. in this big common room we're in. Well, it's supposed to build social capital. Uh, it's supposed to in, um, encourage people to congregate and to... Um, Hang out and to socialize and to study and uh, and to create a destination. Um, whereas before this building was built, it was a patchwork of asphalt parking lots and uh, um, nondescript areas and uh, asphalt pathways and uh, and so now this is a place where people want to come and stay. And I think that that's what was one of the major goals of the design of this building. So the courtyards are almost as significant as the building itself. And another very unique feature of this building, too, is that there's exposed concrete walls and ceilings. The actual structure of the building is made from concrete, and the concrete uh, retains heat in the winter and coolness in the summer. And there's an air plenum uh, underneath the, the floors, and air actually comes out of the floor uh, through diffusers, uh, where at, which is men, uh, minimizes energy use because you're not forcing air down through the ceiling, and so you need you know smaller fans and, and that sort of thing. And the air rises up, it hits that concrete, and it either cools or it warms, and then it's uh, circulated out through individual offices through the system. But this whole design here actually kind of uh, is significant from a standpoint of airflow because it, it kind of uses a stack effect. And it, it rises, and then it comes down, and it goes through these openings right here. Yeah, we're in the middle of this, you know, as you said, it's like a, it's got a cathedral ceiling, it's a big open room, but we're standing right next to basically a hole in the floor. I mean, there's, there's a couple of, uh, wooden walls and with glass on, uh, either of the short sides, but it's really a hole in the floor, and that's to keep the, the air circulation going. And the lighting too is significant because the wall of glass, uh, because uh, and the lighting system itself uh, it responds to the ambient light outside. So you could be in your uh, office and your lights would automatically dim if there's plenty of light coming in from outside, or brighten if there wasn't. Um, so it's automatic in that way, and uh, that minimizes energy use, and it also creates a, a pleasant atmosphere to be in. Uh, the there's a lot of natural light streaming in here today. Right, right. And air that goes out the building, uh, we capture the heat of air going out the building, uh, and it's uh, then transferred to incoming fresh air, and that minimizes the need to heat the building. Uh, also, during um, the summer, water is sprayed on incoming fresh air to cool it. 
using evaporative techniques to, and that uh, will cool the air by as much as 18 degrees. And uh, the air handling units are called Minerga air handling units, and they're actually German air handling units. They don't have any technicians in in, uh, the U.S., but they monitor the systems from Europe. And, uh, and they can adjust them accordingly, too. Somewhere in Germany, there's a the computer screen that's showing what's going on in this right. building. Right now, they can monitor this whole system uh, online. For more on Kroon Hall and to see some nice photos, go to www.environment.yale.edu slash Kroon, K-R-O-O-N. It's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, for the first time, researchers have found fragments of an asteroid that was tracked as it entered the atmosphere. Story two, the top Internet submission in a NASA contest to name a new wing of the International Space Station is Colbert, thanks to ballot stuffing by Stephen Colbert and his minions. Story 3, researchers are working on ways to charge your portable devices with your normal body movements. And Story 4, Charles Simonier, who led the effort to create Microsoft Word, publicly apologized for the program's strange glitches, especially its tendency to suddenly change the font and type size of entire paragraphs. Time's Up Story 1 is true. Almost 300 meteorite fragments have been found in Sudan, That originated as a small asteroid that hit us last October. It's a big deal because we can now match chemical composition to orbit and appearance in the sky, all without doing a pricey mission to mine an asteroid and bring back some of it. For more, check out the March 25th story on our website titled, Rock Science, First Meteorites Recovered on Earth from an Asteroid Tracked in Space. Story 2 is true. Colbert is the top submission as a name for the new space station wing. But NASA says it may override the public and go with serenity, perhaps due to an earlier allegiance to Frank Costanza. Early reports are that NASA may name one of these stations commodes for Colbert. And story three is true. Normal body movements or even just your heartbeat or a breeze could soon be charging your iPhone. That's according to research presented March 26th at the National Meeting of the American Chemical Society. The researchers say that zinc oxide nanowires generate an electric current when they're stressed in any way, so just wearing them as you walk or even breathe would move them enough to generate electrical currents that could charge your portable devices. All of which means that story four about Charles Simonyi apologizing for words weirdnesses is totally bogus. But what is true is that Simone took off for his second visit to the International Space Station, where he may very well use the Colbert. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out Siam.com for the latest science news and our in-depth report on the robots among us and the Scientific American Mind article, on how humor makes you friendlier and sexier. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.